As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. This episode is going to be a little different than some others I've done in the past. I was perusing through some old newspaper articles, as I am inclined to do late at night when I have trouble sleeping. I decided to pull from the past a single day in the life of a Minneapolis Tribune reader with an emphasis on the strange and the criminal. And I wanted to release this episode on the anniversary of the events and on this day in history episode, if you will. I chose Monday, August 4th, 1913, 106 years ago today. It was the period just prior to the beginning of World War I, hidden amongst articles about Great Britain threatening to establish a naval base in Bermuda, war in China, and strikes in California. There are plenty of tales of intrigue, murder, and even humor. And the one local crime story on the front page that day was one that made me chuckle. Policeman in Streetcar Overhauls Auto Thieves was the title. Exciting chase with the capture of youthful joyriders. This past Saturday night, late at night, six St. Paul boys had stolen an automobile in front of the Mandarin Cafe, which sat at 35 East 7th Street in downtown St. Paul. The two ringleaders, W.C. Ward and H. Foramau, were 19 years old, and the others, evidently just following along for the ride, were all under 18 and out for a joyride. After the driver of an automobile, a Mr. W.T. Walker of Elk River, had reported to the St. Paul police that his car had been stolen. The department phoned their Minneapolis counterparts with the description of the stolen car, with a request that it be looked for. When a Minneapolis patrolman named Charles Knighton, working out of Lake Street Police Station, stopped to check in at the police box at Lindale and Lake at about 3.30 a.m., 
he was given the number of the stolen car. Lo and behold, as he turned around, the stolen automobile just happened to drive past him. And one of the cheeky passengers shouted out, Hello, Bill, (laughs) as they blew by. Knighton was a a beat cop without a, a vehicle, so he hailed a passing streetcar in an effort to give chase. It wasn't a regular streetcar, but instead known in streetcar lingo as the money car because its sole purpose was to pick up the fare receipts at each station. And it was empty of passengers, of course. The motorman stopped to pick up Knighton and the chase was on. Despite the head start by the boys in the car, Knighton asked the driver to hit full throttle to try and catch up. As the trolley passed 3rd and Lake Street, Knighton signaled to a motorcycle patrolman named Waldroff to help him with stopping the automobile. And Waldroff joined in and tried to catch it. The Tribune referred to Waldroff as a pop-pop policeman. I assume because of the pop-pop-pop-pop noise made by a 1913-era motorcycle. There were no details on exactly how they caught the car, but the paper explained that they finally caught up with the joyriders at Lake and Chicago and were taken to Minneapolis's central station. Soon, two SPPD detectives arrived and brought the boys back to St. Paul. Meanwhile, in Duluth, an 18-year-old girl named Annie Bowenkey from Arlington, Wisconsin, was arrested after being found wandering on a high boulevard, scantily clothed and distressed. Once at police headquarters, she told officers that she'd been assaulted in a local hotel that passed Saturday night by two men, who then stole her suitcases. A police captain escorted her back to the hotel, and as she showed him the room where the assault took place, a man named Bucart walked up to her and started speaking to her. The officer arrested him on the spot. Bucart explained that he and the girl had arrived in Duluth together and were considering marriage. The police were suspicious, however, and the paper suggested that it might have been a case of kidnapping or what they called white slavery. In another story involving a streetcar, the conductor of a trolley in Minneapolis dashed up to a patrolman in Seven Corners that prior Saturday afternoon and told him that a man had just threatened him with a revolver. He just went into that barber shop over there, the conductor reported. You can pick him out easily. He's carrying a guitar. The officer went into the barber shop and found the man with the guitar but instead of a gun, he carried a tin flute. The conductor admitted his mistake, but the musician was still taken to the South Side Station and charged with disorderly conduct. For what, we don't know. But it might have been an excuse to get him into the station to entertain the officers, or he might have shown some signs of belligerency, as the remainder of the story suggests. After explaining to his interrogators that his name was Frank Scott and that he had recently come from Tennessee with a minstrel troupe, 
Sergeant Nelson asked him to give them a little rag. Scott proceeded with a full concert for the policemen, including Alexander's Ragtime Band and the Robert E. Lee. But when he came to the end of his set, he began again, playing all of the songs he had just played once more. For over an hour, he played his guitar, repeating songs over and over again, until Sergeant Nelson finally demanded that he stop, but Frank Scott refused and kept playing anyway. Finally, the sergeant took his instruments away from him forcibly, mid-song, and Scott became so agitated that he ripped all of the clothes off of his body. The sergeant called for a doctor, who, after examination, diagnosed the musician with malaria. He was taken to City Hospital. In more ominous news, an interpreter with a construction crew working for the Milwaukee Railroad near Chanhassen was found murdered either late Saturday night or early Sunday morning at the edge of an apple orchard near the train tracks. The man was Polish but went by the name James Smith. His pockets had been rifled through and it appeared as though robbery had been the motive. Three members of the crew he belonged to were arrested in Chaska as they were the last to be seen with Smith at 11 p.m. Saturday night. Back in St. Paul, an unidentified man died in City Hospital on Sunday, seven hours after he'd fallen down an elevator shaft in a building at 7th and Wabasha Street. The night watchman at Michaud's grocery store, one of the main tenants in the building at Wabasha and 7th, reported to police that he'd found a man sleeping on a sand pile behind the store shortly before 4 a.m. and chased him away. Not long after, he heard a scream and found the man at the bottom of the elevator shaft. Evidently, he'd fallen down the shaft and his skull had been fractured. The unidentified man was taken to St. Paul City Hospital and seven hours later died from his injuries. It was evidently a busy week at the city hospital. The identity of another man, this time a victim of a murder in Minneapolis, was also being investigated by police. A man named Thomas Owens had come to Minnesota three years prior with a traveling carnival. He'd quit the carnival while it was in Mankato and he eventually worked his way up to Minneapolis, where he was employed as a teamster driving a sprinkling wagon. Mrs. Thomas Kelly of 723 Fifth Street North, who said he had rented a room from her for the past two weeks, was convinced that he was the man who had been found murdered the prior Thursday, his body left in a boxcar in a railroad yard in Minneapolis. The man had been shot through his back and the bullet had entered his heart. There were indications of a struggle and blood stains on the floor. One police theory was that the man had been killed by robbers and his body tossed into the car. Whether the murder had happened in the rail yard itself or on an incoming train and the body then transferred to this car, the police were not sure. According to the Tribune, the dead man was about 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed about 140 pounds. His eyes were black, 
He had dark brown hair and he carried a vertical scar on his right cheek about two inches long. On the outer right forearm was a tattooed figure representing a thistle bud between two leaves. A finger on the right hand had been amputated some time ago. The clothing was frayed slightly, but of good quality. The man's pockets were turned inside out. Not a cent of money was found in his clothing. And scattered over his chest were a number of burned out matches. It was the theory of police that the murdered man had displayed some money in the presence of hobos, and they had shot him for it. The day that the body was discovered, by the way, was the same day a lineman named Watson fell 40 feet from the top of a telephone pole at Chicago Avenue and 28th Street. Evidently, he'd come into contact with a live wire while making repairs in the employ of the Minneapolis General Electric Company. He was taken to Northwestern Hospital, but the chances of a recovery the Tribune reported, was slim to none. But that wasn't the only fall from a pole written about in the paper that day. Earl Morford plummeted 35 feet from a telephone pole at University and Pryor Avenues. He fell on his head, was taken to Cobb Hospital, and again, little hope for recovery, wrote the Tribune. The final titillating article in this August 4th, 1913 edition of the Tribune was complete with the casual racism so common in its day. The headline read, Chinaman admits story of holdup was a fake. Wong Nan tells police he framed weird tale to avoid arrest. Had tussle with dissatisfied customer who chastised Celestial. It finished with a quote from Bret Hart's famous poem, The Heathen Chinee, which, by the way, was written as a satire in 1870, as Hart opposed anti-Chinese prejudice, especially prevalent in his home state of California uh, during his era. But to Hart's later dismay, the poem was embraced by racists of the era, completely misunderstood from its original intent. The paper continued with the most famous lines from the poem. For ways that are dark and tricks that are vain, the heathen Chinese is peculiar. The article went on to say that Minneapolis police chief Martinson was thinking about the poem while he interrogated Wong Nan, a Chinese-American who owned a laundry at 256 Cedar Avenue in Minneapolis. Wong Nan had reported to the police that that prior Saturday night, a man had entered his business, choked him almost to unconsciousness, and then robbed him of $100. However, under direct interrogation from Chief Martinson, Nan's story collapsed. He had not been robbed at all, he finally admitted. Instead, he said, a local worker from the neighborhood had showed up at his store to pick up two freshly laundered shirts. Before Nan could even wrap them up, however, the worker told him that those were not in fact his shirts. Nan explained that there was a mix-up 
and he didn't have the man's original shirts anymore. He could take these or none at all. At this point, the angry man grabbed Wong Nan by his neck and flung him to the floor. Evidently realizing that this response was a little too strong, he panicked and dashed out the back door with the wrong shirts under his arm to make his escape. Wong Nan got up off the floor, snatched a knife, and ran after his assailant, but to no avail. He then called the police, which of course began the investigation. Chief Martinson, after the questioning, got Nan to admit that his losses did not amount to $100, but ultimately only to the loss of the two shirts, which doesn't really make any sense, <laughs> as Wong Nan had willingly given the wrong shirts to the customer. Well, I hope you enjoyed this brief look back in time to the more notorious goings-on in the Twin Cities and Duluth from the pages of the Minneapolis Morning Tribune dated August 4th, 1913. Cheers and until next time.